I'm sure you've heard of the famous Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, if you've ever read it, you'll find it is a, a book that tries to compile a list of human achievements. It's gotten very thick. But as you read this book, you will find some strange records, some strange things people do just to become famous. Did you know that at one time, the longest fingernails in the world was on a pair of male hand. It belonged to Melvin Brook, whose nail had a combined length of 32 feet and 3.8 inches, 9.85 meters. I don't believe God intended fingernails to grow that long. Uh, but this man wanted some fame, and so he grew his fingernails that long to be in the record books. I, I can only imagine how hard it must have been to scratch his back, or maybe it would have been very easy to scratch his back. I don't know. Uh, another interesting tidbit, the greatest weight lifted by the human tongue is recorded uh, by Thomas Blackthorne of the United Kingdom, who lifted the weight hooked through his tongue. Can you imagine that? the weight of 27 pounds and 8.96 ounces. That's 12.5 kilograms. That's a bowling ball hanging from your tongue. I don't know why anyone in the world would do that. And disclaimer to the kids who want to try to break that record, don't do this at home. Another record was the record for memorizing the never-ending pi. It was achieved by Chao Lu of China. And he recited Pi from memory to 67,890 places. I don't think this man had much of a social life. But for him, he could brag the fact that he could memorize Pi to 67,000 places. I can do it to 2, 3.14, and that's about it. The most expensive commercially available pizza... Uh, can be found in Gordon Ramsay's Maze Restaurant in London. And because of a special topping of an Italian rare white truffle, it can cost you upwards of over 7,000 pesos for a pizza pie. Dalibor Japnolovic of Serbia wanted to become famous, and he is known in the record book as the man who can balance the most spoons on his face. Have you ever tried balancing a spoon on your face? I can do one, barely on my nose. Unaided without tape, Dalibor can balance on his face 31 spoon. Maybe you can try this when you go to the restaurant this afternoon. I don't think you can get more than three. And that's one on your nose and one each stuck through your ears. The largest collection of Hello Kitty memorabilia belongs to Asako Kanda of Japan. She has in her household 4,519 different Hello Kitty items. You thought you had a lot at 40. Uh, this woman has 4,519 and includes such things as a Hello Kitty frying pan, a Hello Kitty electric fan, and I don't know why she would want that, a Hello Kitty toilet seat. And one that is one of my personal favorites, Donald Gorski of Wisconsin, is known in the record books as the man who has consumed the most Big Macs at McDonald's. As of August of 2008, he has consumed more than 23,000 Big Macs. He is on his 37th consecutive years of eating one Big Mac a day. 
And if you see a picture of Donald, you will find that he is one of the thinnest men you've ever seen. I wonder what drives these individuals to want to become so famous. What drives these people in such a competitive streak to do the absurd? It's because of the achievement, success culture in which we live. Is it something that is encouraged? Is it, is it born? I'm not quite sure. Uh, a few days ago, after the recent Chinese periodical examination, my, my son came home and he looked very sad. I asked him, son, why are you so sad? Did you not do well on the test? He said, Daddy, I didn't do well. I said, what did you get? He said, Daddy, I got a 99. And I'm sad because I missed one. I said, son, what? Now, now you may think of us as parents who beat our children to achieve great things and to always be perfect. But you, you know me. I'm not like that. We just simply want them to do their best. And I thought for a while, why is someone so young at the age of six so worried about perfection? Achieving something that we've never demanded of them. Where does that drive come from? Where does that achievement come from? Where does that competitive streak come from? My friends, like it or not, we are driven by an achievement culture. It has so permeated our environment that we don't often think about it. We're not aware of it. And so that's what we want to address this morning as we continue our series entitled Culture Wars. We've been looking at current cultural practices to see if it's something that we can accept as a part of the Christian life or something we need to change to transform for Jesus Christ. And we want to filter the achievement culture of our world today to the biblical grid. How do we engage an achievement culture where failure is not an option? Where there is a drive to achieve something that the world will find significance. Where we are stimulated by the clap of approval from the world. Does this work in the Christian life? We'll be turning to a passage in the scripture that I believe will answer this question. But before we turn to this passage this morning, let me lay out some foundational principles when we talk about the achievement culture, I feel there are four general things people in our world today try to achieve. In these four things, they're looking for significance. They're looking for worth. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for happiness. These are the four subcultures that draw under the umbrella of the achievement culture. And so let me give you these four subcultures first before we look at the scriptures. The first drive that our world perceives as an accomplishment is the drive to have the most things. That can include having the most cars, uh, the most money, the biggest home, and for this one woman, the most Hello Kitty memorabilia. And somehow having the most of something carries the notion that if I have more of something, I'm somehow better than you. If I have the biggest car, the newest car, the newest gadget, the most phones, the most watches or of shoes, somehow that makes me better than the next person. We in the church are not immune to this as well. It's as if we have the biggest church in terms of attendance, then somehow we are better than the other church. This drive to have the most things creates the subculture of materialism. 
And so if you're taking notes, number one, we're talking about the culture of materialism. This culture says that if I gain these things just a little bit more, then I will be satisfied. Now you say, Pastor, relax. Isn't it okay to have a few things? Absolutely. But somehow the drive for materialism drives us so deeply into very dark places where we become very envious of others. We begin to covet. We begin to pride. Sometimes in its radical form, it leads to very unethical practices. It leads to corruption, to steal, to gamble, so on and so forth. But as long as I can achieve having the most things, then I'm all right. Because somehow this this culture of materialism tells me he who dies with the most things somehow wins. I don't know what they win, but if we strive to have the most things, we win somehow. The second drive that drives many of us to feel satisfied or have achieved something in life is to become the best and the brightest, to achieve the height of intellectualism, like memorizing pi to the 67,000th place. As long as I know more than someone else, I am fulfilled. This drive to know more has created in this environment the subculture number two of intellectual elitism. There are people who strive to be on the top of their field. They want to be the experts. They strive for multiple doctorates. They want the better grades. They want the most awards. They want to be the best orator, the best debater. They want to be intellectually smarter than everyone else. They want to be able to compute something in our head faster than others. But somehow this has worked to the detriment of our Christian walk. This affects our own thinking that somehow we can't take our Christian faith at face value anymore because somehow faith is not empirical And so even amongst believers, there's a rise in the embrace of secular humanism. And the thinking goes something like this, because only dumb and uneducated people would believe in a God who's able to do the supernatural, a God who's able to do the miracles, a God who can create the world in six literal 24-hour days. You must be dumb to think that there's a God who's able to do so. You must be uneducated if you really believe what the Bible says. And yet there are brilliant scientists, if you would only listen, who believe in the creation account of the Scriptures and are showing evidences for it. In striving to become the most intellectual, we have derived in our own minds a sort of intellectual elitism. And then we begin to put God in a box And in trying to be elite, we limit God's power. We focus on mankind and humanism. And this sort of focus away from God and upon the ability of the human being is perpetuated by people like Richard Dawkins in what is called the new atheism that's working its way in our culture. And yet if we believe what God says he's able to do, then he's able to do what is recorded in the scriptures. He's able to do the miraculous. 
And these are the things that the intellectual elite disregard as the fantasy of the mind. The negative result of intellectual elitism is looking down upon the significance and the importance and the inerrancy of the Word of God. Looking down upon faith as a matter of practice. We have dichotomized faith. Faith is only for the religious people, the people who are uneducated, who can't find any other purpose in this life. Give them faith so that it will give them a warm, fuzzy feeling in their hearts. But we, who are elite in our minds, we don't believe that. It is reason and fact that will carry the day. And that's why often the smarter you get, the less spiritually inclined you are. Be warned, my friends. There are many people who are too smart for their own good. They aren't striving for materialism, but they're striving for intellect. And they have created a mindset where they no longer really believe in God. And I've seen that year after year, even amongst our own graduates, people who are so smart, and when they weren't as smart, they had such a deep faith, but somehow they go to college, they somehow go to the work world, and they slowly but surely begin to look down upon the importance of faith in their life, the importance of the Word of God. The Bible tells us it is with a childlike faith that we come to know Him. Do not get too smart for your own good. Do not get too smart for God. You will never be. The third drive for most people in this life is to be influential. Especially if we don't have the money to be materialistic or they don't have the smarts to be intellectual. They strive to be influential. And this strive and drive for influence creates the subculture of power. Under the umbrella of achievement, we have the culture of power. And it goes something like this. I will be the king of my domain as long as I have influence over my society circles, over my circle of friends, I am satisfied. As long as I, I'm head of my household, I've got a purpose. I need power. According to Forbes magazine, just recently released in 2014, they were ranking the most powerful people in the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin, again, was ranked as the most powerful man in the world, beating out again. U.S. American President Barack Obama. I wonder how much this affects the ego to be number two. So close to being number one, and yet you are ranked below someone else. How many of you like being number two? If you're number two, you will strive to become number one. Even if you're the president of your own organization of one, at least you're still the president. But just to be on top gives us a great satisfaction. And so I never understood the corporate structure here where you can have 12 levels of vice presidency. But as long as you have that term, that title, that influence, that culture of power, then that gives to you significance. The culture of power often leads to very aggressive behavior. 
Even pastors and Christian leaders are not immune. That's why there must always be proper checks and balances. There must be accountability. There must be transparency. Because left unabated, the power culture will drive a person to the fringe of dictatorship. Even in the scriptures, the Bible tells us, in the family unit, the wife is to submit to the husband. And so all the husbands clap their hands. I'm on top. But don't you forget what the Bible says in Ephesians. But husbands, you are accountable to the Lord. One of the detrimental effects of a culture of power and of influence is the rise of the myth of busyness. The idea that the busier I am, the more important I am. And so you know how it is when people ask you or they ask me, how was your week? How was your day? The answer, more often than not, is, oh, it's been busy. I'm inundated with busyness. As if there's something wrong with mentioning the fact that somehow I, I didn't do much this week. I just laid at home in my bed all week. I had a really relaxing day today. Have you ever said that when someone asks you, how was your day? I didn't do much. I had a wonderful day. We're afraid to say that. Why? Because we feel that if we say something like that, they will perceive us as people without influence. Because being busy means you're important. And so if you're always busy, that means someone is always looking for you. If you're not busy, no one cares about you. You have no influence. We have so turned this myth of busyness upside down that it even affects the Christian life. And yet you remember what Jesus told Martha and Mary. Martha, stop being so busy. Come, sit down, listen like Mary does. We're going to be examining this idea of busyness in this weekend's Spiritual Life Conference so that you can walk away refreshed, realizing that the Scriptures teach us about what it means to enjoy the Lord in the relaxation that He brings us and gives us as His good gift. Why do verses come and tell us to cast our burdens upon Him, to offload the yoke of the burdensome loads we carry and to put it on Him? He's inviting us not to be so busy. And yet, in the striving to be the most influential of our spheres of influence, we've been sucked into the culture of busyness and of power. It affects even the family unit where fathers are missing from their families, absent. Oftentimes, the mother steps in and therefore not allowing the fathers to lead. The final drive for many people in our culture today in which they find significance is the drive to be famous. If I can't have money or resources for materialism, if I don't have the smarts to be intellectual, and I don't have the power to be influential, then I want to be famous. I want to have my 15 minutes of fame. And this drive to be famous has created the subculture, number four, of the celebrity culture. The celebrity culture. We all want to be known 
for something. There are many people who, in my opinion, don't deserve to be famous. People like Kim Kardashian, people like Paris Hilton, through their antics and their provocative actions, they are celebrities because we make them celebrities as they also sought out fame. But society-wise, they have contributed absolutely nothing. And I'm not judging them. Just from my perception of their life, these people should not be whom the world calls a hero. And yet they hold celebrity status and intrinsically, we all want that. That's why we're, we're so sucked into shows that they are on. We all want a slice of the famous pie. We all want our 15 minutes of fame. We want to be remembered even after we're gone from this world. That's why we focus so much on records. Who's got the most wins? Who scored the most points? Who has the most assists? And of course, especially in sports. You know, recently I've been reading a lot of uh, interviews uh, of who can arguably be considered one of the best basketball players to have ever played, Michael Jordan. Reporters have been asking Michael recently how he views the next generation of stars like LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. It's interesting, he often couches his answer uh, very subtly, but if you can read between the lines you understand that he's saying that he's still the best. When he compares himself and his play with the current crop of superstars, he often talks about how much the game has changed, how much the game has gotten easier. Back in his days, it was so much harder. And he infers the fact that if these new generation of stars played when he played at his prime, they wouldn't achieve so much as well. Read between the lines. He's saying, even though I'm not playing anymore, I'm still better than them. It's funny how everyone wants to remain relevant. Everyone wants to try to be famous in this celebrity culture in which we live, even though their time has come and passed. So there you have it, the four subculture of materialism, intellectual elitism, power, and celebrity that underlies the umbrella of the achievement culture that seems to drive a person's life. Oftentimes, it has become our life's purpose to fulfill one of these dreams of ours. But what does the Scripture say? You know, there's so many passages that talk about life's purpose and life's pursuit, and even about the topics of defining success and achievements. But I simply want to look at one passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Psalm. And we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 1, the very first Psalm, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Now, as you're turning to this passage, lest you think I'm advocating for Christians to be a bunch of underachievers or to strive for mediocrity, when I talk about achievements, I'm focusing on purpose of life. The pursuit of happiness. What gives you joy in this life? What are you living this life for? Because in our profession, we have a responsibility to do our best. In the education opportunities that God has given us, we are to do our best for the glory of God. 
I'm not challenging you to be underachievers. I'm not saying that you can't achieve great things in society for the betterment of this world, for the glory of God. What I'm saying is, how are you living this life? What is the purpose of how you live this life? So instead of pursuing achievement as a be-all, end-all, what is the biblical perspective to finding significance and achievement in our life? Let's take a look. Look at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This psalm begins by saying, happy is he who does the following. You can always replace the word blessed with the word happy. Happy is the man or woman who does the following. Who does not follow the things of the world. Who does not follow the perspectives of the world. Who does not follow its pull. Who does not follow its influence. Happy is that man. Notice the progression of the verbs in verse 1. The progression from walking to, to standing, to, to sitting. Here's the image that I get when I read verse 1 of Psalm 1. It's the image of a person walking to his home every day. And as he walks to his home, there's a street musician always playing there at the same corner. And every day he walks, he simply walks right on by. And yet one day after a few weeks of walking right on by, he hears a tune that piques his interest, perhaps a familiar tune. And for the first time, instead of walking by, he, he stands there and he listens for a few minutes at the music this man is playing. And the next day he walks by, he again stands and listens a little bit longer. In the next few days, his time stand, spent standing there increases until he begins to strike up a conversation. Knows a little bit more about this musician on the side street he himself this person walking to his home frustrated musician one day takes the boldness to ask can i sit down with you and can i jam with you can i can i play a session with you to which he is invited and so the next day he brings his guitar and he sits there and he begins to play and he enjoys it thoroughly that he forget, and he forgot that he'd ever walked by in the first place. That's a positive example. But here in verse 1 of Psalm 1, this is the progression of the idea of one who is drawn to sin. And sin is very attractive. The lifestyle of this world calls us. We're trying to walk past it. And yet, one day, we let our guard down... And something rings in our ears that we stop just to look. Just to look, mind you, willing to walk right by, but just to look. And then the look stays a little bit longer and longer and longer. And we don't like to stand anymore, and so we like the lifestyle that they live and the world calls us to, and we sit down right next to it. And now we are in collaboration with it. My friends, never stop to entertain, even for a second, the pull of this world. Because you will be drawn to it. Blessed is the man who walks right on by. That's what happens when you have wonderful people like Miley Cyrus. 
if you've seen her today, she's gotten off the deep end. Grandfather was a pastor, her, his, her father a believer, and recently is, he is now divorced and looking at the plight of his family, has said emphatically, I regret ever allowing Miley to do Hannah Montana, if you are familiar with that Disney show. And he said, I regret bringing my family to Hollywood. Hollywood, intrinsically, you've been there, is not evil. It's just a place, a section in L.A. And yet the culture where one should just simply walk by and yet many stand to, to, to admire. And then before you know it, they are sitting down with that culture. Happy, blessed is the one who avoids the progression from casual influence of the unrighteous to collaboration with them. These are people who are able to avoid the achievement culture of this world to be the rich and the famous. But then where is this person's joy? What is his life's pursuit? Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. In contrast, we've got a man who delights in the word of God. This blessed man finds his delight in his desire to seek after the Lord. The Bible says he looks at the scriptures day and night. It's got the idea that the word of God is his influence. He, he looks to it as his aid. It is his advice column. His influence is not in the world. It is in the word of God. This man enjoys it. He's not being forced. It is not boring to him. The word of God is a delight. Something that he craves. You see, the culture of achievement is so because in our achievements, we find delight. We find satisfaction. That's where we get our significance. Think about it. When you talk about yourself, when you introduce yourself, how do you introduce yourself? Very few of you would introduce yourself as one who walks with Christ. Hi, my name is Stephen. I walk with Christ. No. We begin to get the litany of our resume. I'm Stephen. I'm, I'm the senior pastor of this church. These are the people in my church this is where I was educated. Wow. Because that's where we derive the significance of who we are. It's tough to break away from that. And that's why the culture of success is so ingrained because we find delight in it. It makes us feel good when they're in wonderment. But you look what the Bible says, verse 2, but his delight this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He delights in reading and meditating on the word of God, following the principles spoken of. Two days ago, I was at the mall uh, at Trinoma to get something. And it was around dinner time. And so as I was walking to run my errands, I found to my surprise that uh, a long-awaited restaurant that I was waiting to open was opening on that day. It's a chicken wing place up on the fifth floor. It's a franchise from Texas. So I asked Cindy, would you mind if we had chicken wings for dinner? Uh, she doesn't really have much of a choice. So I just asked her just to be nice, but it's still my final decision. Uh, she agreed to it. She does like chicken wings. And so I went to order and uh, asked the lady at the front, uh, does it taste like the ones in the U.S.? She said it does. And so I began to um, order uh, 
I said, okay, they have a lot of sauces with their chicken wings. And I tried to look through this list and everything looks so good. But uh, after talking about it, we decided we wanted three sauces. Two sauces is about 11 wings. Five for her, six for me. That, that's about right. Uh, but uh, there were six. I mean, uh, you got the original buffalo sauce and uh, the lemon pepper sounded really good. But we wanted to try the teriyaki. And so the three sauces, you've got to order 20 pieces. So I said, okay, I'm pretty hungry. I'll, I'll take 20 pieces. But then the other sauces looked really good, and there were two more that I wanted to try, and I told her we may not come back again um, as well. And I said the garlic parmesan looks very good as well, and, and the Louisiana rub, I heard, is excellent. And, and so I got five more of that uh, and the six more of that, and so we ended up with 31 wings. That's 15 chickens that can no longer fly. Um, and one of them goes around in a circle. Um, but uh, we waited, and I waited with anticipation. And, and you can just see uh, five. I mean, I think the, the, the server was quite surprised that it was only for two. But uh, she brings it out. And uh, if you could only take a picture, as my wife describes it, uh, my eyes literally popped out. Pure delight uh, eating it. Uh, there, yeah, there is no picture evidence. Uh, I had forgotten but, but that is a glimpse of what is delight, uh, coming to the Word of God in the very same way, savoring it, uh, not able to get enough of it. That's the idea, craving for it, eyes popping out as you see the principles that seem to shoot out and the beauty of God's Word. And yet very few of us have this notion, have this delight. And yet that's what the Bible says we are to achieve. More and more, that is the man who is blessed. And what is the result of all this? What's the result of this proper focus of this life's pursuit? Look at verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And underline this last phrase, circle it. And whatever he does, note this, shall prosper. Here's the image of a beautiful tree, a grand tree, a majestic tree, planted firmly, deeply rooted, foundation in the source of life. It is a tree that is not dying. It is a tree that is full of life. Notice the description that the leaves do not wither. It bears an abundance of fruit at the time it is supposed to. There's variety. There's life. And notice what is important. This is not describing a tree. This is an illustration that describes a person. Look at the pronoun. And whatever he does shall prosper. There it is. He succeeds. He achieves something in his life. You see, my friends, when our life's purpose is to be rooted, to be more Christ-like, then whatever we do, we will prosper. Because... What we are and what we do finds its significance in the eternal things. We become people of significance as God's children. We become people of worth. We become people whose works are written in the books of heaven, recorded for all eternity, that which is seen and that which is unseen by man. And so it doesn't matter if we never become famous if we never have the car of our dreams, the job of our dreams, the position, the significance, 
living in a mansion. It doesn't matter if someone beats my record because my significance is not foundationed in those things. My life is not defined by those things. To have and to not have, it doesn't matter. Because I bear fruits because my source of strength is Jesus Christ. And He produces in me a God-controlled life. And through the way I live and in my actions of that God-controlled life is where I find my achievements. Whatever He does prospers. Even if He always works for minimum wage. Even if He never has a home of His own. Even if He loses everything. Even if no one knows Him he prospers, he is successful, he has achieved true success because he is firmly rooted in the one who knows and keeps and remembers all. It is of eternal value. What happens to those who seek for worldly things? Look at verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. The ungodly are people who do not value a relationship with God, whose lives are driven according to their own passions, whose lives are driven according to their own achievements. The Bible says this, note this, they are nothing. They are worthless. They are compared to the chaff. The chaff is the worthless part of the grain that is blown away by the wind in the process called winnowing. Those whose lives are driven by earthly achievement will find that their lives are worthless in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter if you're Bill Gates. It doesn't matter if you're Carlos Salinas, the richest man in the world. It doesn't matter if you're Vladimir Putin, the most powerful man in this world, according to Forbes. It doesn't matter if you're a Taipan, an Asian dragon in business. It doesn't matter if you're the premier doctor or architect surgeon the accomplishments that you have the bible says are worthless if they are not foundationed upon living it for jesus christ if you strive for money it will all be gone you can't take it when you die if you strive for smarts you will find that someone is smarter than you if you strive for influence someone will be more powerful than you if you strive for fame, some will become more famous, more skilled. They will break your records. Some will become more beautiful than you. And we'll talk about the beauty culture in a few weeks. That's why the wisest man in all the world, looking at life in general, who had accomplished great things in his life, King Solomon, writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And there, if you remember in our study in this book, the great theme, that a pursuit of life apart from God is utterly meaningless. It's a vanity. That's what the Bible says. A, part lived, a life lived apart from God is utterly meaningless. Think about that. Unless you live your life for God, it's worthless. Now, you can argue with me. This man, this woman, has contributed much to society. That's true. But people will forget them. If you look at life, you understand it's a, it's, a, it's a life full of disappointment. 
In Hokkien, we say botat. It's not worth it. Children don't remember. We've just noted in past to November 1, very few people nowadays go to the cemeteries to honor the dead. And that trend, in the next two or three generations, no one will go. It's simply but a vacation weekend. And people say they go earlier, go later, but the reality is they don't go at all. It's worthless. That's what the Bible says. And that should shatter what you're living life for. The heroes of my day growing up are no longer the heroes of today. They get replaced. So also your life. Unless it is rooted by streams of living water, it will be remembered no more. But there is a great assurance for those whose singular focus of achievement is to know God more. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Would you underline that first phrase in verse 6? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's a great phrase of assurance. It's a great phrase of assurance that allows me to give up my worldly achievements to focus on the fact that I live for one who will always remember that the great arbiter of one's life, the great judge, knows all things. He knows if I've lived this life for him. He knows the things that I've done for him, whether the world sees it or not. And when the great arbiter of life knows the way of the righteous, and the word, the way, means one's whole manner of life, what, what type of life he lives, what life he produces, I'm assured that I can let go of my degrees, that I let go of my status, that I don't have to worry whether people will like me or not. It's hard to let those things go. Because even as a pastor, I do find significance in those things. But I can let go of those things because the great judge knows if I've lived a life for him or not. And that should bring such great encouragement if you never become famous according to the world's standards. If no one ever stands up and gives you a clap on the hands, you will be honored for all eternity if you have prayed faithfully for your children, for your husband, or husband for their wife. You will be held to high acclaim if you are a man of faithfulness to your spouse, encouraging them, showing what it means to be a godly father. It will be a great acclaim in all of heaven, although the world may not appreciate it, how much you desire and have desired to dig into the Word of God to know what it has to say, to take the time to delight in what God has to say. I want you to turn with me to one more passage, Proverbs 2, 7. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 7. What a wonderful verse. I, I want you to underline this. One of my favorite verses. 
Here's what Proverbs 2 verse 7 says. It's part of the wisdom literature. He holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless. Do you get that? In some of your translations, the word success is translated great wisdom. He holds success in store for the upright. Isn't that what we're all looking for? Achievement, success? Here in this verse, this Proverbs, we find that success and the righteous life are tied together. Righteousness and success in this life are tied together. If you try to achieve worldly success using unrighteous means, you will never be viewed as a success in God's eyes. God says very clearly in Proverbs 2, 7, He, God, holds success in store. He gives purpose. He gives achievement to those who are upright. Notice the second part of this proverb. He is a shield. He protects those who walk in, whose walk is blameless. He protects the upright. If you're going to run the race called life, if there's a site that you're going to set on to live this life, God is going to run alongside of you and he's going to protect you. And as long as you live your life faithfully, righteously, then you will receive the success that you are looking for and the success that God is looking for. In the competition of this world to have the most thing, would you compete to have the most Christ-like characteristic in your life? If you're going to compete about having the most things, have the most Christ-likeness in your life. That drive to be most Christ-like is the culture of discipleship. You see, the antithesis to the culture of achievement is the culture of discipleship. If you are being discipled, if you're walking the path of discipleship, it will shield you from getting drawn in to the achievement culture of this world. What will be said about you at the end of this life? When I read about the men and women of faith of the scriptures, I am reminded that when Abraham was referred to in the scriptures, he was referred to as a man of God. Remember Enoch of old? The Bible tells us Enoch walked with God and he was no more. That's how close his relationship with God was. Moses, the one who stood face to face with God. That, that fellowship. Elijah, one who walked with God. The centurion in the New Testament, he is commended as a man of great faith. Not his military rank, but a man of great faith. The Apostle Paul, a man who walked with God. And the list goes on in the commendation of the men and women of faith in the Scriptures. They are commended on their success. And their success is that they walk with God. On my epitaph when I die. I hope I will not be known as the one who likes to eat. The pastor who liked to eat. Perhaps that will be 
what I'm remembered for. That is okay from a humorous standpoint. But I would like to be remembered, and I've told my wife this. When my time on this earth is done, I wanted to be known as Stephen Tan, one who walked with God. It's hard because we define ourselves in so many different ways. What do we want to be known as? The great man, the great doctor, the great lawyer, the great businessman, the one who changed the world, the one who has the biggest home. What? What defines you? Sometimes in my life, I think that I hope that when my time is gone, I would be known as the pastor who stayed the longest at grace. I don't know. The one who built up this church, but then I realized that is the wrong way to live this life because I don't know what my future holds for me. But I want that when I'm remembered at the end of this life, it is that I'm simply one who walked with God. It's hard, really is, to receive the greatest of accolades, and that is what it is. When you, at the end of this life, and it can be said about you, this is a man, this is a woman who has walked with God, you would have achieved true success in this life. Let's pray. Father, it is a good reminder even to me that the draw of achievements in our culture is so strong because in our achievements, we are looking for significance. We are looking for identity. We want to be special. And yet we have forgotten, Lord, that our identity is found in you. You bought us with your shed blood because we are special. Our title is as children of God, and therefore let us live with that title to make sure that every day that we live, we're living for true success, to be known at the end of our life as a man or a woman who walks with God. Help us to shed the accomplishments of our own life that we try to define ourselves with and help us to simply delight in your word, in who you are, in trying to live a life for you. I pray that this church will be known as a church of men and women who walk with God, whose lives are transformed by his grace, who shine a, a living testimony for you because of what you have done. And this church will be called a successful church because its people walk with God. In Jesus' name we pray.